But like with all other things, ushers adapt quickly. It's one thing I tried to teach them the art of the pivot. When life hands you lemons. Make lemonade? No. First, you roll out a multimedia campaign to convince people lemons are incredibly scarce, which only works if you stockpile lemons to control the supply, then a, a media blitz. Lemon is the only way to say I love you, the must-have accessory for engagements or anniversaries. Roses are out, lemons are in, billboards that say she won't have sex with you unless you've got lemons. You cut the beers in on it. Limited edition lemon bracelets, yellow diamonds called lemon drops. You get Apple to call their new operating system OS Lemon. Little accent over the O. You charge 40% more for organic lemons, 50% more for conflict-free lemons. You pack the capital with lemon lobbyists. You get a Kardashian to suck a lemon wedge in a leaked sex tape. Timothy Chalamet wears lemon shoes at Cannes. Get a hashtag campaign. Something isn't cool or tight or awesome no it's lemon did you see that movie did you go to that concert it was effing lemon billy eilish omg hashtag lemon you get dr oz to recommend four lemons a day and a lemon suppository supplement to get rid of toxins because there was nothing scarier than toxins then you patent the seeds you write a line of genetic code that makes lemons look just a little more like tits. And you get a gene patent for the tit lemon DNA sequence. You cross-pollinate. You get those seeds circulating in the wild. And then you sue the farmers for copyright infringement when that genetic code shows up on their land. Sit back, rake in the millions, and then when you're done, and you've sold your lempire for a few billion dollars then, and only then, you make some fucking lemonade. Welcome, everybody, to Aeon Bite. Welcome on this Mercury Day, and uh, welcome to that introduction from the Netflix series, The House of the Fall of Usher, which gives it away, gives it away what the oligarchs and the archons are doing and have been doing for thousands of years or longer. But this is the world. This is a simulation. This is a universe where men have nipples, and the soul is the most valuable commodity in the world. My name is Miguel Connor, and I am your pompadus of Gnosis. And glad to see people already going into the chat room. What are you? What are we gonna do? Well, uh, all I can say is that um, boys will be girls, and girls will be boys. It's a mixed up, muddled up, shook up world, except for Lola. Lolo, Lola, Lola, and our guest today, Richard Weber. It's not mixed up because he's figured it out. Hey, Richard, how are you? Oh, great. Hey, I love that clip. I, I had to tape it and watch it three times. That was the best writing I've seen in a series for years. And it really describes our current situation, right? Totally. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I anyway, thanks for having me back. I appreciate it. Oh, always good to have you. Uh, 
It's always great. And uh, we just did an interview about a month ago. And I feel there's so much more, especially your knowledge. And of course, the the quote unquote fictions in your novels. Right. Just like the fiction in the house, uh, in the fall of the house of Usher. Yeah, great series. How it starts with uh, Pink Floyd's The Wall Part Two. At some point, oh, yeah. it has Ace Freely's New York Groove. So Besides telling us the truth, great taste in music. So, oh, um, yeah. And the woman, the actress that played the uh, deceased wife that was haunting him, she was just top drawers. So. Yeah, yeah. yeah mm-hmm. Great. Very true, yeah. Check out the series, people. And with us, too, we've got the Moondog Vans. Vans, how are you doing? I'm, I'm pretty good. Just sitting here wondering uh, and pondering the fact that if you're going to – engage in sex magic you should be young right (laughs) (laughs) well somebody should have told crowley that (laughs) yeah really he's an old geezer right anyway should be fun yeah indeed Indeed, yes Uh, they didn't have viagra in those days i guess you had to the days of the aphrodisiac. What do they yeah. tell you? Clams and champagne. I forget what else it was. Oysters. Oysters. oysters sorry. Yeah. Well, yeah. The whole thing on oysters and how would you know eating it gave you natural vitality. It wasn't cooked. It was raw. Yeah. Okay. Well, mm-hmm. Viagra. That's real sex magic, right? Yeah. I prefer Cialis myself. I don't. I don't know if I'm going to make love in an hour or not. <laughs> yeah. Really. Raised from the dead, right? Yeah. <laughs> Double pun. Yeah. Awesome. Right. Well, we got uh yeah, not much else in the house in the um, housekeeping or so um we got some great shows coming up uh next week, amazing shows, other cool announcements, but uh I'll wait till towards the end of this interview. For those of you in the chat, as always, you know the drill. Don't bring the Watiko and turn the turn the chat into the Watiko. If you have any questions for Richard, please super chat them so we can separate them, and we will get we will get to them for sure. And uh, yeah, other than that, please support the show any way you can. I could always use the help. If anything, uh, like, subscribe, share with all your friends this amazing heresy that we need more than ever to get away from those in power and those that are manipulating us and find our inner truer selves so we can be free. So Richard, any, any, you want to intro or shall we just jump on to the presentation? Let's just jump right in. Let's Um, do it. I can tell you a little bit about my background. I was a retired federal agent. So I think I have a keen mind for the investigative and analytic process. And, um, I've been interested in the occult and the esoteric for since I was probably 16 years old. So I've read just about everything there is to read. And uh, to get prepared for this, I had to reread it. <laughs> anyway, um, and my fiction, even though I write fiction, for some reason, the occult and the esoteric always rear their head in my stories. You know, they're just there all the time. So this book came out, um, geez, quite a few years ago, The Bonnage Project, The Nephilim Rising. But the esoteric creeps in. I've got Young's Red Book, and I've got Alchemy. And the basic, I'll just give you a short synopsis. 
Blair Kelly's a British archaeologist. She's in Syria on a dig. And the dig has been taken over by a <laughs> descendant of a Nazi geneticist named who's coined himself Al-Bajal, which in Arabic means the devil, right? So they're at the dig, the eye of sin, the whole thing turns to crap, earthquake, everything. And there's this young little girl there. He's got all these kids lined up. And he's kind of like uh, the Nazi occult bureau that he you know, inherited from his father's lineage. He's, as he's scouring the world, he's always looking for artifacts and esoteric things. He's got these little kids all lined up. And he comes to the end, and he's got Blair a captive now. And there's this beautiful little, like, eight-year-old girl with indigo deep eyes, flaxen blonde hair, but she's an Arab. And her name's Noor. So anyway, the thing turns to shit. Noor, I won't tell you how, helps Blair escape from it all. Blair hooks up uh, little Noor with her brother, Dominic, who's the Vatican miracle investigator. And he's also, because of that, a leading authority in the Vatican on alchemy and the esoteric. So they go to England, et cetera, et cetera. Well, the Indiana Jones part of it comes in, in that this Heinrich Gant is a big major arms dealer. And he's uh, nobody knows exactly how old he is, except they figured he was in World War II. And due to a, a tragic accident, his face became very disfigured. He has to wear all this makeup and mask all the time. So his quest with the Red Book and the Vonich manuscript, which he gets his hands on, and then he even does a raid on the British Museum to get the Crystal Skulls, is to find the Fountain of Youth, to restore his youth and get his face back and everything. And there's more children like Noor. And when they go there, they give her a false identity, and she's reading Peter Pan, so she picks up the name Wendy. There's an Eden school that's filled with these kids with special things. So it's kind of a trope on Stephen King and uh, John Ferris with, you know, the rogue evil guys keeping these kids with special things. But the alchemy comes into it very deeply toward the end. And when <laughs> Nora, Wendy escapes from the school, she's in an alleyway and she meets Miss Doolittle, who's kind of an old bag lady. And she's got like this fur... Uh, stole on her neck, and a cat runs by. The stole comes to life, turns into a real fox, and chases the cat. And then Eliza introduces to these really strange old couple that just seems like they're from another century. And then we find out their name is Nicholas Flamel and his wife. So it's kind of like, um, what's his name? Uh, the Count of St. Germain, who people say is still alive today. So anyway, kind of it in a nutshell. But if you want to find it, it's just go to Amazon.com. But, but you notice I signed it R. Douglas Weber. So just search for that. Okay. All righty. So let's go into Gnosticism. Now, you got to jump in here if I'm wrong or I'm you know not covering enough. But I just wanted to give kind of a background before I get into Jung's interpretation of it all. And, um, well, I wanted to add something. Um, so you kind of know where I'm coming from. Like I said, I've been into the esoteric for years, but I, I, I would steal from Robert Anton Wilson and say I'm an agnostic-gnostic. And I'm 
Okay. Uh, he was a brilliant writer, you know. <laughs> That's a great turn of phrase, right? But I also have the scientific part of my mind, you know, that keeps interrupting. And I have a hard time. To me, all religion is almost an excuse or an explanation for why is there good and evil in the world? How can they coexist? So we've got to make all these cosmologies and we've got to create a demiurge. We have to do this or we have to create Satan or the devil, you know, because God's all good and all loving. And how could you do this? But of course, in mysticism, you kind of get away from that polarity and that dualism and you come to believe that they're one and the same. But I looked up some statistics on something. I sound like Neil deGrasse Tyson, probably. <laughs> we are a solar system in the Milky Way, right? Okay. Right. Do you know how many galaxies that astrophysicists think exist in our Milky Way? 400 billion galaxies oh, just in our Milky Way. Do you know how many solar um Galaxies there are in the whole universe, just a rough estimate, two trillion. So if you take 400 billion and you multiply that times two trillion, you get 800 trillion solar systems in the known universe. And that's a pretty educated guess. So for me to believe that there's a God that really cares so much about the little third rock from the sun and our little homo sapiens on it, and that there's all these other gods and all this stuff. I mean, what about all those solar systems? There's got to be other intelligent sapient life out there, you know? And even though he's God, would he really have time to be that involved in everybody's personal life, you know? And could there be archons and demons that are always after us and trying to influence and change everything? That's why I, I kind of like Jung's explanation of it all. And he said firmly he believed in God, but, you know, I think his concept would be totally different than the average Muslim, Jew, or Buddhist, or uh, Jaya Christian period. Right. So anyway, the cosmology, I'm sure your viewers are familiar, but maybe you got some new viewers in our, right? So the one, the invisible God is at the top, right? And he's kind of out in the plural, okay? Then under him comes the mother goddess, right? Barbola, am I saying it right? Barbolo. Barbolo, Barbolo, yeah, right, whatever. And then from her emanated the aeons. And the aeons, even though they've been given all these names, are really just kind of concepts of virtuous thoughts that humans have, you know, charity and wisdom and justice, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, the story goes that one of these aeons, Sophia, wanted to know the invisible one completely. And she just couldn't. And she got really frustrated about it. Yeah. So if you want to put a little sexual thing on that, you could put that on there, too. She was a woman, and he was kind of a male figure, right? Yeah. So she decided, without telling Big Daddy, that she wanted to create things of her own, the image herself and her own wisdom, right? So she created the demiurge or, or uh, what's it? Yabadot, right? Yaldabaoth, yeah. Yaldabaoth. I mean, we, we weren't there, so... Yeah, who knows? Who it, right? yeah, just a name somebody gave. Anyway, 
But he had a problem because he didn't really, he had a little bit of the dim divine spark in him, but he didn't really know there was a God above him. He thought he was God. So I'm bored. I think I'm going to create the universe and matter, right? Mm -hmm. But he didn't, he wasn't really in connection with that divine spark, okay? So Sophia looked at this and said, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You know, I've got to clean up my mess here a little bit, right? So, and then he created the archons, right? Which aren't all bad, but generally we think of them as bad people. And in um, Jado Christian uh, thought the Kabbalah we call the Quipath, right? Mm -hmm. The opposite of the Sephra, right? And in Christianity, we call them demons, right? But she kind of played a trick on uh, the Demiurge, especially when he created man. She inserted a divine spark into man, unbeknownst to him at first, and a little bit in the archons too, right? Because she wanted mankind to have a chance and not be dominated totally by this evil. And um, I guess the main tenant of Gnosticism people would say that um, matter is bad because it was created by that demiurge. It's evil. It's terrible and terrible. Now, Jung didn't go along with that at all. That was a basic disagreement he had with Gnosticism. He was more into the Kabbalah. And there was a story where he went to Africa and he was sitting on a hill in the Serengeti Plain. He saw this beautiful sunrise. And he said that was the most moving spiritual experience in reality, you've ever had. He had a lot of experiences not in reality, but that just struck him. So his belief was that God created creation. It's a beautiful thing. There's evil things that happen. There's natural disasters. But, you know, a rose is a rose by any other name. And a sunset's beautiful. Okay. So we kind of go through that. And then, of course, the other tenet is from Genesis that unlike uh Jado Christian thought, well, no, just Christian thought. The serpent wasn't Satan or Lucifer. It was either Christ in some respects or Sophia because she wanted to intercede and teach these poor Adam and Eve and the human race who were slaves to this demiurge that they had free will and they had to know the difference between right and wrong and they too could become one with their divine spark eventually and become gods themselves. I mean, some people say we are gods. We just don't know. It. So that kind of gets that in a nutshell. Okay, so <coughs> the origins of Gnosticism. You've got two divisions of good and evil, right? You've got sonum bonum and infimalum, the evil, right? Mm -hmm. Now, Rudolf Steiner, who was another philosopher, occultist, I guess you'd say, but probably more Christian than anything else. He believed in, like, Christ consciousness. <clears throat> but he divided the world into three parts. Aramin, darkness and control. Christ, the Logos, the true path. And then, oh, Lucifer. I forgot Lucifer. Now, he's the light bringer, etc. But it's so bright, and this is kind of what Roscurians teach, too, that it blinds you and blocks you off from the true God. Mm -hmm. So it's not, he's not the devil, but he's a trickster, I guess you'd say. <coughs> okay, so the undefined God is infinite fullness and evil is infinite emptiness. 
-hmm. or effective, I'm sorry, effective fullness and effective emptiness. Okay. Like I said, well, I went through that. Young didn't, doesn't accept the basic tenet of Gnosticism, the material world is evil. Okay. <coughs> now, <coughs> back in the first, second, third century, they didn't use the word Gnosticism or Gnosis at all. Okay. And what you had a hodgepodge in Alexandria, Egypt, like you said, of Platonic thought. You had beginnings of Christianity. <coughs> and you had all these sects of Gnosticism. And there was a little bit of early seeds of Hermeticism, I would say, sneaking in there too, right? <coughs> and you might have had a little influence from India and the, you know, with the, the um, Tantra, etc., yoga, and <coughs> also the Sufis, right? You don't really know. It's just kind of a gray area. <coughs> but it was a total hodgepodge. So, the divisions of Gnosticism at the time. Okay. Now, heresy didn't mean what it means today. First of all, it just meant choice or school, a different school of thought. Right. But of course, the budding uh, Christianity or budding Catholic Church didn't go for that at all. They wanted to be number one. But contrary to popular, but they weren't number one at the time. They were all in competition with each other to be number one. So, unfortunately, we had three main divisions. I mean, no, there was a lot more, Valsities and Valentinians, but you had the Sethians, the Carpocratians, and the Nazi, right? Now, unfortunately, until the Nagarmadi find that we got some of these actual Gnostic tasks, we got most of everything we knew about them from Arrhenius and, um, how did you say his name before? Hippolytus well, and Arrhenius. Yeah, and they were just off the wall. Of course, their, their mission was to destroy Gnosticism yeah. as a, well, I don't want to say heretical, just say a false religion. You know, not Christianity at all. It's going to lead you down a path of depravity. So they accused them of uh, polygamous relationships, uh, drinking menstrual blood, you know, eating semen, um, you name it. And then even, well, I was accused them of, of that. Well, this thought was kind of there. They didn't believe that just intercourse for intercourse for sexual pleasure was good. They wanted it to be godly in a path above. So like we said, I don't know if they got that from the Egyptians or they got that somehow from India at the time or whatever, you know, or maybe it's from the collective unconscious. I don't know where it came from. But more I look at there's all this cross similarity in thoughts all over the world and all these different religions. And sex magic is one of the oldest tenets of all the religions. Anyway, um, so we could call blood libel, especially when um, he said that they, uh, if they had a product of intercourse, it was just pure lust of flesh that the baby would be killed and eaten by the Sultans. You know? right. If you pull back and you look at what he was describing, it could be described as a tantric, holy, sexual ritual. Yeah. You know, 
And the idea was that the seed was sacred, right? And you just shouldn't spill it wantonly, right? You shouldn't spill it on the earth. So consuming it would be a holy thing to do, right? So, you know, it sounds disgusting, I guess, by modern Christian standards. But if you really think about it, I'm sure it happens frequently. <laughs> okay. So, now he also said, and this fits in too with even Crowley and everything, that they did all this in the name of an angel and were instructed by an angel. But if you're picturing some archetype of an angel in this rite, that's pretty natural, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I would say so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, now Young kind of, I guess we can go to, uh, Jung and uh, Freud there. Slide. Yeah, there's Jung, the Gnostic Jung. Uh, well, let me just say that, you know, he was such a mystic, you know. Um, he was so, he got a lot of his thoughts from deep meditation and visualization and what we would call a vision quest, I guess, with Native Americans, right? Mm-hmm. And his whole Red Book, that was only published posthumously because he didn't want everybody to see his inner thoughts was dialogues in a meditative visualization state. And I'm not saying, you know, today we incorporate all his things into language and a lot of people don't even know it. You know, you've got introvert, extrovert, the persona, the subconscious and the conscious, right? And projection, but I want to talk about projection later with our current mm-hmm. state of affairs. Okay, so let's go to the next one. I'm Jung and Freud. Um, now, Jung studied under Freud for six years. Okay, He was his mentor, his God. And Freud said that he was like his absent errant son. He called him a prince, and he expected him to be the heir apparent to psychoanalysts. But they had a real falling out. And the story is that it was over libido, for one thing. Um, Jung didn't like Freud's conception that libido is his dominant sex drive, and by repressing it, it created complexes and neurosis and psychosis and everything. He thought that was way too simple. But he had a dream, and he related it to Freud. And in this dream, he pictured himself in a house. And on the first floor was all these art masterpieces everywhere. And it was decorated beautifully with gold and Persian carpets and everything. Then he went to the next floor and it was dark and dim and just candles and just a feeling of verboding and creepiness, right? Then he saw a doorway. He went down into the crypt and there were skeletal remains and bones and next to it and some uh, papyruses, three skulls. Mm-hmm. Freud said, I'll interpret this, you know. I want to know who those skulls represent. Either it's a death wish for you or someone else. Well, Young said, no, it's my concept is the first room, the glorious room, is our conscious. Mm-hmm. The second dark room is our subconscious. And the third basement is our uncollective conscious. Well, Freud thought that was just <laughs> the craziest freaking thing he'd ever heard and was totally disappointed and they parted ways. So Jung was really a, a true mystic and uh, went on his own path totally. And he wasn't even originally accepted by 
there was a small group of psychoanalysts growing in Europe. He wasn't accepted by them either because they kind of were buying into everything Freud said at the time. So, um, let's see, we can go into, okay, I'll go into this in depth, but an overview of Jung's cosmology with Gnosticism would be that um, you have the monads, you have the invisible God, okay? Mm -hmm. And then you have Sophia and Barbella. He kind of lumped those together as the divine feminine, okay? And then under that, you have the libido, okay? Now, he divided into two spheres, male phallic sexuality and the mother, the female sexuality, okay? And then we have the soul and then the ego. That's kind of how Jung looked at the Gnostic cosmology in his worldview. And it makes, it makes sense to me. And a famous quote is, he said, you don't possess spirituality and sexuality, they possess you. Mm -hmm. And if we can come to realize that, face them, integrate them into our psyche, we can be a whole person. Okay, moving on. Now his concepts, he thought the archetypes and the collective unconsciousness were elements of our psyche that we all share, is all they were, okay? And they were symbols and etc. And at first I kind of struggled with the collective unconsciousness a little bit, but my take on it now is what he was really talking about is genetic coding that he called it the 2,000-year-old mind is what it was. And I looked up a scientific study where they took rats and they infused the cage with the scent of almonds, that chemical, and then they would give them an electric shock. And they would do this over and over to the point where the rats became conditioned to just tremble, quiver, and cower in the corner just with the scent. Now, the interesting thing is that they bred their offspring. They put them in the cage as soon as they were old enough, sprayed the scent, and what did their offspring do? Same damn thing. They went and trembled and cowered in the corner. Now, yeah. where did that come from? Then they took the grandkids of the first rats and did the same thing, and they cowered in the corner. So it's not concrete scientific evidence, but they think that they geomapped about 30% of the geodome or something like that, and the rest they call junk DNA. So there's actually scientists out there trying to find if that junk DNA has some sort of a memory coding from our ancestors, you know. So it's kind of nature surpassing uh nurture and of course freud thought everything was nurture 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 you go to, to a freudian and they all they wanted to talk about your <laughs> right and now your mother was gone you didn't love your mother you know you loved your mother you wanted to kill your father or electro you know you, you loved your father you wanted to kill your mother i mean that's was his whole take on it and um eat those oysters too eat that's those oysters too, yeah. <laughs> um so young Identify parallels between agnostic names and his archetypal concepts, right? He's famous. That's the other thing he's famous for is the creation of the archetype, which is kind of complex, but like, let's say if you picture a horse, 
not just a Palomino or a Bay or whatever, just some etheric vision of a horse, period, or a dog. <coughs> You're at many, whatever. That's the archetype, the pure image of what it is. <coughs> and Sophia, of course, is wisdom and the divine feminine aspect. Okay? And Jung believed that we had this, and I, I can see it myself. I'm sure everybody can. We have a male side if we're male and a female. And in the male side, the, the male, it's dominant male, right? We feel we have to be that way, right? But some of us are more in touch with our feminine side. And I don't mean gay. It's just, you know, that's the intuitive side, the creative side of us, right? And, you know. Except if you're Lola, low, 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 low. Or you're. I don't know if you're gay, that, that's another thing, yeah. and sexual, I don't know, but God bless them is all I can Yeah, say. we all have an anima and animus. Yes, exactly. It exactly. has different yeah. spectrums, yeah. And he believed we need to conjoin those to become a whole right. human being. So it's, I guess you could say the Gnostic rites were trying to do that, you know, and we're going to alchemy, but, you know, the chemical wedding. The Harold's Gamos, I think, was an imitation of no. trying to do that on the level of the gods, you know. Even though people just think of it as sex, 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 it was more than that, I'm sure. Now, in some cults, it was probably just sex, but the <laughs> basic meaning behind it was that. Okay, so now we're going into... Um, yeah, I think we did enough of that. The individual. Well, Young also thought that we need to have a decentralization, a degradation between the male and the female and the shadow aspects of our, our uh, archetypes, right? If we were oblivious and we totally denied them, we're never going to be able to reach wholeness again. So first you have to have this division and then you have to have the integration. And, you know, what I love about Young is I don't need a priest, you know, or a guru or a minister or a rabbi to tell me what to believe and guide me down my path. I might need a little instruction, you know, here and there, but then I can take my own path. That's what I love about Gnosticism, and I think that's what Young was saying. You know, go by some of these principles I came with and then go work on yourself, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. So, we are to alchemy. So, let's see. Oh, I don't know. Whatever you want to put up. Um, we have two divisions in alchemy, historically. Okay? You have the purely chemical, metallurgical side, you know, and people always say, well, they were trying to make lead into gold. Well, that's part of it, but it, it was kind of a precursor to chemistry. You know, and they did learn to make acids, etc., and they did learn to separate the salts and this and that. Okay, but then the other side is the spiritual side. Okay. Now, I kind of have to take a deep dive into that, but um, the first, it's just, I'm just going to try to talk about Western alchemy because it's such a broad subject, you know, but we do have to give credit to the Arabs. Because they preserved the Greek texts when they got passed on, probably um, when the Moors or the Arabs occupied Spain, you know, mm -hmm. until Elizabeth said, 
become a Catholic or get the hell out. And they migrated into Europe and they spread alchemy, right? And of course, they were later translated into Latin and German or French or whatever, right? <clears throat> but the first Western alchemist of credit was uh, Maria the Jewish, right? Mm -hmm. And well, I forgot to mention it, but it's obvious, but just like American Christians today forget that Jew Jesus and the 12 apostles were Jews, for God's sakes, right? They weren't <laughs> blue-eyed, blonde-haired Anglos. They were Jews, right? They weren't Americans? No! It's <laughs> news to me. But how often, when do they ever say that in church? They never say that, do they? No, of course not, no. So she was a Jew, and she was probably the first Western alchemist, okay? Right. Okay, so... Um, it wasn't until about the middle of the 7th century that it became totally mystic. Before that, and the academics show, like if you watch, um, what's his name, Jason Sledge, Dr. Jason Sledge, he goes through the actual text and shows it. It started as chemistry, but it went on from there. And he also showed there's an ancient Kabbalah text that have alchemy in the back, too. But the alchemy we got from the Arabs, actually. When it came right down to it, it wasn't our brainchild. Right? <clears throat> so, and it gets into sex magic here again, because in the Indian tradition, okay, the divine body in Sanskrit embodied Yavanmukita. Okay, the alchemists include material on the manipulation of the mercury, okay, and the sulfur, which are symbols for sex. Okay? and are homogenized with the semen of the god Siva and the menstrual blood of the goddess Diva. Mm -hmm. So there we go back again. You know, So did the Egyptians have their own kind of take on it? We really don't have any record that clearly that they expressed it. I don't know what they were afraid of if the high priest was a ruling class. Who were they afraid of? But there's no real connection. There's allegory that we think like when um, um, Isis raised Osiris that uh, it was due to his member and it was actually the opening of the mouth was fellatio, which mm -hmm. makes sense, right? But, you know, we don't want to hear about that, right? <laughs> so the early alchemical writings were probably influenced by the tantric stigula kula, which, you know, encompasses all that. Um, now, in the 13th century, it became structured with and kind of blended with Hermetic tradition, with the macrocosm and the microcosm and everything like that. <clears throat> but it wasn't until the 15th century when Medici, I guess it was Cosmo, right, had Marcelo Finco drop what he was doing and he found the Corpus Semeticum and he translated that. And everyone went, oh my God, this is amazing, right? And that blended kind of with alchemy at the time, right? It became very good. But then, um, <laughs> well, then you had the Inquisition, right? And they were locking up and burning alchemists at the stake. So if you were an alchemist, you had to keep it secret. And that's why they're saying that this coded language that the alchemists used was understood by the other elites and adepts. So, but that's 
supplanting spirituality on top of it. And it's not really quite clear what part of alchemy should be spiritual and shouldn't. But it seems to make sense that it was totally agnostic. And Jung said that he found that alchemy was the link to let him understand Gnosticism. It was the key. It was the door and the stairway that connected the two. And he went, I got it. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, he went out of his theories. Okay. So now we got the cult revival in the 19th century, right? We had spiritualism and everything going on, right? And hermeticism was big. Everything. So two key figures are Marianne Atwood and Ethan Allen Hitchcock. Okay. They publish similar works. And her famous quote on alchemy is this: no modern art or chemistry, notwithstanding all its surreptitious claims, is anything in common with alchemy, period. So she was totally of the opinion that alchemy was spirituality. Period. Mm-hmm. Okay. Then <laughs> Back to my old buddy, Robert Anton Wilson. He was a smart dude. He really was. (laughs) And he was a hippie. (laughs) He tried every drug there was. (laughs) All right. So I'm going to just read a little bit from this alchemical text. Let the lion and the eagle duly prepare themselves as prince and princess of alchemy. As they may be inspired, let the union of the red lion and the white eagle be neither cold nor heat. Now comes the time when the elixir is placed in the retort and is subjected to the gentle war, the great work of transmutation. The red lion may be fed upon the flesh and blood of God, and also let the red, red lion duly feed on the white eagle. You read this stuff, you go, know, what the? What are they talking about, right? I don't get it. Are they talking about real sulfur and mercury and lead and gold, or what are they talking about? Well, Wilson and a guy named Collings, who was part of the OTO, said it's simple. And Wilson had kind of a eureka moment with the whole thing, you know? Um, When he realized it was all about sex, he went, oh, my God. I could connect all these dots together. So he said the red lion was the male failed penis, right? Mm-hmm. The white eagle was the female's vagina. The retort was the womb or the vagina where they mixed, right? The transmutation was the altered state of your consciousness to a higher level. And the elixir is, say it, semen. Of course, <laughs> semen, semen, right? I love to sail in a boat with him right across the city. <laughs> Monty Python. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Guys yeah. There were so funny. Oh, great stuff. So Thomas Vaughn gave further examples, and the poets have done this, and etc. So the question is, there seems to be a direct link in alchemy to tantric yoga. How did that get to the West and to alchemy? I guess you could say if it was the Arabs, it was maybe the Sufis, you know. You could say some of it was Egypt, but we don't really have a clear record. We just had the rituals without a real key to the no. right? So that's good. <clears throat> now, others have suggested that this is a little far out for me, that there was a tantric sect amongst the troubadours, right? 
because if you, I can't have time to go into it, but the troubadours were also supposedly, <coughs> they were singers and storytellers who traveled from city to city, but there was supposedly <coughs> a hermetic, a mystical, agnostic message underneath their stories and their songs. Right? For sure. Yeah, they came out of the Cathars. Right, the Cathars, exactly, who were decimated for being <coughs> heretics again. Heretics, yeah. So, anyway, I said about the Sufis. Okay. <coughs> Young's Theory on Alchemy. Okay. <coughs> the Negretto, the Ablado, the Sinrintas, and the Rubido. Okay. He looked at them this way. Negretto is the dark night of the soul. Okay, it's it's the depths of our unconscious mind. Okay, it's a transformer potential that lies there if we can harness it and face it. <coughs> Obedo is the purification and self-reflection of doing this. Right, <coughs> we peel back the onion and look at these hard truths about ourselves and come to grips with them. <clears throat> so Trinitas is the balancing aspect of the two, right? Getting all the yin and the yang all together, right? <clears throat> Harmony. Rubido is the culmination and in the individualization process that we should all be striving for. Okay. So now we can go into the shadow self. Yeah, I think I know enough about that. Well, he mentioned the Philosopher's Stone, too, but it's basically a culmination of the individualization and linear integration. It's not, Am I still on the right slide? Um, let's see. Well, yeah, that's just the demiurge. And we can that's use the that demiurge. Yeah. yeah. Okay. okay. So there we go. That's better. Yeah. Okay. Well, demiurge can kind of symbolize the shadow self, you know, but if you look on this chart, we tend to think of the shadow self as just pure evil desires and complexes and, and urges, right? But there's also this positive side to it. Yeah. So, and <clears throat> a goofy example I read was you take a serial killer or a gang leader or some really hardened criminal, and he's in an old prison, and he finds this little mouse. And he makes a bond with the mouse and he loves it and feeds it and gives it all its attention. Mm. But that's a positive side of his shadow self that he cannot reveal to anyone. And he doesn't even really recognize it himself because the minute he gets out in the street or in the yard, he's got to be Mr. Tough Asshole and all this. And he doesn't love anybody and inspired everybody, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So you've got the jester, the lover, the hero, all these things, the outlaw, the explorer. And the shadow self isn't entirely bad. It's what motivates us, you know? Why are you and all three of us on this quest for knowledge? It's coming from the shadow self, and it's a positive force, right? But then <laughs> we have the negative side, right? <clears throat> and I'm going to focus on the sorcerer, okay? <laughs> And the interesting thing about that is, um, well, wait a minute, I should really go into 
that represents the mystical side, the magical side, and the darker aspects of our humanity, aside from the, the good side, you know, which we tend to forget about. We need to blend those together and integrate them, okay? Well, first we have to acknowledge they're there. Like I said, separate them, face them. It's kind of like the Star Wars movie where Luke has to go in the cave and he sees this uh, image of Vader, he has to challenge him, right? And it's like, did you ever think of this? Let's take ceremonial magic and the Galatians conjuring of the demons. What you're really doing is conjuring your shadow self, right? Yeah. And if that's, and if you did that, recognizing that they weren't real entities, they were just fragments of your psyche, I wouldn't have a problem with that, you know? And even Crowley admitted later that whether they are or not, you know, it's kind of like, um, <clears throat> I forget someone said, whether there's gods or not gods or demons or angels or, art, you know, ands or whatever, the universe functions as if they are real. So it's kind of a weird concept, but it does seem to just fit. You know, maybe it's the way we look at the world, whatever. Well, we were meta-programmed, like uh, Robert Anton Wilson said. Okay, mm -hmm. so <clears throat> it came. So the sorcerer was an archetype, and guess what? I decided to go to Chat GPT, and I asked it this prompt, this just a simple thing: name some historical figures who would fit young sorcerer archetype. Oh wow. Yes, whose name spit out first. I mean, it named John D. and it named Hermes Trismegistus, but first, Uncle Al, Alistair Crowley. Oh, Uncle really? Al. Wow. Isn't that I was thinking uh, Simon Magus or Solomon. Yeah, no, but well, but it was oh. going for the dark side. Dark side, dark yeah. Side. Yeah, see? And if you think about it, if it's the key, Totally. And not to interject politics, but I kind of think this one guy who's running for president right now, the nomination fits that like a T. Right? You don't have to agree. <laughs> Trump. 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 Oh, okay. Trump. <laughs> Trump. I think he's more of a trickster, not a magician. <laughs> no, but he, he, well, we're going to go through it. Okay. So there's a dark triad. I forgot to give you the slide. I don't know if you can see it. Um, no, nah, not really. But it's a triangle, okay? Well, I can um, put you up side. here. Here. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low, net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Let's uh, kind of see it there a little bit better. A little bit. On the left side, we have narcissism. On the base, psychopath. On the right, Machiavellianism. So, does Crowley fit that to a T? Yes. Okay. Yeah. He, you know, you have the narcissistic side, where he thought that he had discovered something new. He was going to create the Anahorus, a whole new religion. All the other religions were crap. And if you just do what I say, you'll be great, right? You know, and you got to follow what I say, even though he believed in libertarianism, you know, and freedom and, and screw the man and the system. 
but you better damn well do the way I say to do it. Right? <laughs> so he was a total narcissist, right? <clears throat> and then he was manipulative, right? Which comes under that too, right? Was a Machiavellian thing. He manipulated everybody he met, period. Mm-hmm. And usually not for the good. One wife ended up in an asylum, you know. Uh, most of them had nervous breakdowns. Nobody ever stuck with him. You know, um, Israel Regardi was a secretary for a couple of years. Kenneth Grant was with him for a couple of years. And they all said, even Jack Parsons said, to hell with you and your rules and your regulations and your dogma. <laughs> you said you never wanted to be considered a guru, a master, you know, even though he called himself a master theron. What a... What a duplicitous statement that is. But I don't want to be your master. I want you to do all this for yourself, but you damn well better do it my way. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then the pathological part, of course, is he was a blatant sociopath. He had no empathy for these people he was manipulating, right? And the mark of a sociopath is their motive is what? Do it for their own aggrisement and gain, period, right? I'm on top, pull up the ladder, right? And do as I say or not. It kind of reminds me of what I read about Steven Seagal and actors I talked to. It's kind of in that vein, too. I mean, I was at a horror convention, and I can't remember the actor's name. But he made that movie where he was the cop or the bad guy, and Seagal was the cop, and he was he was the cocaine guy. And I said, how come he never made another movie with Seagal? And he went, Mm, no, 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 nobody wants to work with him. <laughs> and you can kind of see that his ego is taller than he is. Okay, so, okay, went through that sociopathy. Well, and Carly's an unconventional lifestyle, too. You know, it was more than just screw the man. He wanted to violate and push every taboo there was, period. Mm-hmm. And he did. Right? And he bragged about it. But then he told his celebrants, no, nah, you gotta kinda back off. Don't go wild and this stuff. You know, don't don't do as I do, just do as I say. And the book of the law is the word and everything. You know, I did also read that later Crowley even admitted that it's a definite possibility that the book of law wasn't dictated to him by some his guardian angel, Awas, but it came from deep in his own subconscious. So mm. I don't think he totally bought into everything he was preaching, you know, and he had he had studied Young. Young didn't study him because Young came out in about 1913 and that was in Crowley's 80s. So he was very familiar with the conscious and the unconscious, right? Or the subconscious. Okay, we went through the Machiavellian things, right? And he wanted to make himself not only also ahead of all the occult and the esoteric circles. He thought theosophy was crap and, and everything else was crap. Now, here's an interesting part. Um, Robert Antons Wilson kind of came to that eureka moment about sex being at the bottom of everything after reading Crowley's The Book of Lies. Are you familiar with that one called Breaks? And there's a chapter 69, right? And Crowley was a great pundit. And he always had levels of meaning to everything he wrote. So on the chapter was the um, zodiac symbol for 69, the six on top of the nine, which in today's vernacular means what? 
No. On mutual oral sex, right? No. And then he entitled the chapter how to suck how to succeed and suck eggs. So right. Was right in your face, you know. I mean, but he was laughing at all the time because a lot of people just didn't get it at all. You know? But that was kind of one of Robert Anton Wilson's. And then he he was told by Alan Watts to read the I Am the Triangle by Israel Regardi, and he got deeper into it. And he says, No, you're on the right path exactly. That's exactly what he meant. But mm -hmm. you think about that, that goes back to Gnosticism, goes back to Tantra. Where the sacred seed and etc. And then, yeah, we're getting X-rated here, but in one of Crowley's passages, what he's really referring to is that you have intercourse, the man ejaculates, then he literally does cunnilingus, goes down on the women, sucks the seed up, and then he passes it to her to sacred kiss. But you know, I'm sure. It, it, he corrupted it totally, you know, because <laughs> as a magician, he was a total misogynist, you know. He said, you know, don't just do the sacred sex magic with anybody, you know, because they have karma and you have karma. If you don't know them, you don't have a real rapport and relationship, they could pass all that negative karma on to you. But who did he have sex magic with half the time? Hookers, prostitutes. He just picked up mm -hmm. off the street. So whose karma was he getting? Right, not to mention other infectious diseases. Right. <laughs> okay, so we got into that. Okay. Now, young, like I said, he didn't. Young came up with this thing, and this is uh, from the Red Book, the Sorcerer. You know, and like I said, the Red Book was all vision quests that he went on through meditation. And I researched it, and I can't see anywhere that he ingested uh, psilocybin or, or any, you know, or um, what's the other common psychedelic? Well, they didn't really have LSD, but uh, peyote or peyote. And he even made statements saying he thought that it was very dangerous to do that because if you weren't ready to dive into the shadow in your unconscious, you could have a really frightening, traumatic experience that scarred you for life. You have to be ready for this and do it in gradual steps. So even though things look psychedelic, et cetera, and like I said, they didn't even publish it till after he was dead because he thought people just wouldn't get it at all. Mm -hmm. So it's amazing. I mean, like I said, Freud thought he was, Brilliant, the prince. And Jordan Peterson said he's just, his intellectual is a downright frightening. And you think about this, is like 1900, 1913, whatever. Where was his mind to come up with all these ideas? And to me, they're very pragmatic, they're logical, and they make sense. Do you agree? 100%. Yeah, yeah for sure. I mean, you can't, and if you look at modern psychoanalysts, which we don't even do anymore in psychiatry, what have we, what since Freud and Jung have we come up with? We came up with Skinner with behaviorism. We introduced all these psychotropic drugs, but any new theories on anything? Any new practices? No, you're either Freudian or you're Jungian, right? I mean, you know, you have Roger who's, you know, did the thing, well, how does that make you feel? But that's, you know, that's not even a comparison to Freud. 
So it's kind of weird that uh, we haven't progressed, but maybe Young answered all the questions and maybe that's why. Right? I've never gone to a Young and says, but I wouldn't mind to see what they had to say. Yeah, we went too much to the behaviorist model instead of, and again, just kind of shunted aside the unconscious. Worst thing right. they could have done. Right. Now, materialism, right? It's just plain materialism. Yeah. yeah, it is, isn't it? I mean, like that expert, the clip you showed about Lemon, I mean, that just nailed the way it is in the Western world today and how you manipulate and everything. And, you know, they had yeah. all the, uh, the yeah. evil people at the top know we have an unconscious, and they play to it all the time. They manipulate. Oh yeah, of course they do. I mean, you know, I'm not going to watch the Super Bowl because my Lions didn't win, but I'm not going to watch it. You know, I used to watch it just for the freaking commercials. How brainwashed is that? Now you can watch them on YouTube the day before, but I'm going to sit there watch four hours of football to see a commercial that's trying to get me to buy something. That's just mm, right. Okay, so I wanted to go into a little bit more of how Crowley um, subverted Gnosticism because I would have to say in the 19th century is probably one of the greatest exponents of Gnostic thought in a deviant way. Would you kind of agree with that? Does anybody else really um, put anything new spin on it or anything aside from Jung? From Jung? Oh, yeah, plenty. I mean, um, uh, let's see, Philip K. Dick. Uh, oh, yeah, okay. Who did Naked Lunch? Uh, Burroughs. Oh, Burroughs, yes. Uh, yeah, you got quite a few people. But they're kind um, of... Um, on Jonas and, um, uh, yeah, the philosopher existentialism. Pessimism, well, and all that. Yeah, that's they all draw. And they're all shoots of Gnosticism. Yeah, right. but I mean, in more of a purely religious pseudo fashion. I think that. Uh, well, anyway, we're going to talk about Crowley and Slam a minute. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, so, yeah, but Philip K. wrote fiction like me. So anyway, there's the old Crowley, <laughs> the beast, <laughs> and it is Crowley, not Crowley. You know, everybody pronounced, but he said it reminded me Crow Crowley, right? Anyway, so he supplanted the, um, oh, I forgot the word for her, the mater, you know what I'm talking about from Gnosticism? Mater, whatever, the, the great mother, the feminine concept, the, you know, everything, Sophia, and wisdom. And Bar feminine, yeah, Barbalo, the Barbalo, everything that any right. marvelous goddess you can think of, right? With the whore of Babylon and all things, right? Who he personified as pure sensuality and pure arrows and sexuality and raw sex, 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 period, right? That became his goddess and the goddess of his whole religion, for Christ's sakes, you know? And if that's not <laughs> narcissistic and sociopathic and Machiavellian, I don't know what the hell is, you know? Um, I mean, the Indians have Kali, but that's not the only goddess in their spectrum. He made it her the whole goddess, period, right? Yeah, in all fairness, Richard, there are myths in which Barbalo takes on the aspect of Prunikus, the lewd one. And right. she kind of comes down and she gets the archons excited. Right, they right. And she takes their essence. So there is sort of a sensual aspect to the goddess, even in Gnosticism. Right, but she's not central 
no, 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 no. no, no that's no, what. I, yeah, I remember reading about. That's an interesting tape, but that's like there's so many levels to narcissism, and so yeah, yeah. wide in mythology. But yeah, I remember reading about that too. Well, I mean, getting back to that, they even said that the demiurge raped Eve, and that's mm -hmm. where, and, and that's how she learned about sex. You know, right. whereas I kind of go along with more of the esoteric thing that um, the forbidden fruit was sex. And by knowing each other and that, the light came on in their heads, you know, period. But there's all different takes on it. But anyway, he's subverted it all totally, you know. I mean. You know, if they weren't meant to have sex, how could they have the right parts to have it, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I was watching a show about, oh, that movie, The Island, where they were cloned on that island and they escaped. Yeah, and yeah. That's they a had very their program with sex and they start making out. And I said, I wonder yeah. if they'll just figure it out because this part will fit somewhere. You know, <laughs> think about it. Right. Naturally, it would, you would have some instinctual or collect, you know, un unconscious collective to know what to do, right? So oh, remember anyway. the movie The Blue Lagoon? They figured it out. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I don't remember how I got the stories I had to go through to figure it out. Which, you know, unbelievable. <laughs> you know, I remember we used to watch the Lucy show, and she'd be sitting there knitting booties, and Desi come in and go, oh, my God. And I'm like, well, if they do this, how did he not know? You know, I couldn't wrap my mind around that because we didn't really have sex education back then. You know, but I thought, why is he surprised? You know, <laughs> I remember went to a friend of mine, my other friend went to a PTA meeting and he had just kind of become aware of sex and he looked around the room and he goes, you know what? Every one of these women here, old or young, have done it. That's weird. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so. But he perverted the thing. In Tantra, in Buddhism, in Sufism, the female is the goddess. She's the gateway to mystic union with the Godhead, right? But Crowley, like I said, was a total misogynist. You know, it was all about him, all about the sperm. He, he agreed it should be mixed with the vaginal fluids and consumed, but to elevate him to godhood he didn't really care whether the woman got elevated or not period mm -hmm. which is totally wrong <coughs> okay um now we're going to go into tantra okay <coughs> which should be the girl on the lap no this is a, this is oh that's the horror babylon we forgot to do that yeah that's yeah, from the Crowley deck, yeah. That's from the Crowley, the one he did with Frida Harris, and um, yeah, and it's pretty, you know, it's it's her lifting up the blood of the saints to the Godhead, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, but it's all arrows, 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 you know, totally. <coughs> and he, you know, unusually didn't really go into Baphomet at all. He was more hung up on Babylon than anything else, but. Um, but like I said, remember, Jung said the male is the spear and the female is the chalice, right? And, <laughs> and in Crowley's Gnostic Mass, they do a whole thing with the spear and he dips it in the chalice. It's all symbolic of sex. You know? Anyway, enough about that. 
So Tantra, moving on to Tantra. Okay, now Tantra, like Gnosticism, has been totally kind of simplified and condensed by New Age. You know, you say Tantra to somebody now, what do they think of? Sex, right? But it's more than that. Yeah, only ten, less than 10% is about that. Yeah, basically, yeah. I mean, it was meditation, mantras, which is like, remember with the, uh, the uh, what was that meditation thing was going around in the 60s and 70s? They would give you a mantra when you joined and paid your fee. Right? Transcendental meditation. Transcendental meditation, yeah. right, yeah. <clears throat> and then breath control, the prana, you know, controlling your breath to calm down your mind, clear your mind, and get to an altered state. And the Mandela's, those beautiful paintings that Jung would say the symbols spoke directly past the conscious right to our unconscious. Nice. And uh, meditation, meditation. So sex is only a small part. Like I said, the <coughs> sect of Tantra that really does sex magic is called Kula. You know? mm-hmm. And it, it was more of, as opposed to Brahmism, it was more uh, as to Shiva. You know, the destroyer and his consort, right? So <clears throat> they were kind of one of the first ones, we don't know, maybe to introduce the consumption of the sexual fluids, right? Because this holy sacrament, right? <clears throat> they called it the divine nectar, right? <clears throat> and the female secretion was called the kala, okay? Now, here's where Crowley the trickster comes in again, right? I looked it up. He went to India from like 1900 to 1903, right? And people say, oh, that's where he learned about Tantra. But no, he studied Raja Yoga, not Tantra Yoga at all. And he studied Hatha Yoga. And I credit with him for bringing it back to Europe because he did write some good books on yoga, but Hatha. But he never studied Tantra Yoga. So his story is that he writes in his confessions that after he'd written Book of Lies, one day Theodore Roos, who was head of the OTO in Germany, showed up at his office. <coughs> Sorry, let me get caught up. And he goes, well, you've given away our orders complete secret. What is wrong with you? <laughs> and Crowley says, and he said, um, well, I don't know what the hell you're talking about. What who, who are, what are you what are you talking? It's like I know about your order, but it's just a Masonic lie, isn't it? So he said, Roos went to a bookshelf, pulled off the book of lies, turned to chapter 69, where it said I was succeeded, suck eggs, and said, You spelled it out in plain English. He said, I'm gonna have to make you all the way to the ninth degree in our order, you know. <clears throat> well, that was his original story. Okay, but the publication date of the book is falsified, and it's a book of law, lies, right? Okay. And Crowley admitted later, he said, you know, I don't think I'm remembering this right. I think I wrote the book of lies after I was initiated into the OTO, which would be logical because it would explain where he actually came up with his, his uh, theory and practice of sex magic as a ritual. And that to me that makes a lot more sense, you know. But he would certainly tell a lie to make things more interesting, more dramatic, <clears throat> make it sound like he had this divine inspiration to the whole thing, right? 
Exactly. <coughs> okay. <coughs> so we went through that. Now, people also think that Pascal Randolph, Beverly Randolph, who was an Afro-American medical doctor, lived in the New York area, and he came up with sex magic, right? But he died in 1875, right? Mm. <clears throat> this theories weren't really widely transmitted to Europe. Right? But this guy, John Yarker, who was uh, <coughs> with different occult societies in the OT, did travel to the Americas. And he met, um, uh, just call him Beverly Randolph, it's easier, okay? You know, and he probably brought some of these ideas into the OTO. But here's a remarkable difference. Randolph's theory was that, yes, it's a mystical right that'll lead you, but it has to be between a heterosexual couple. They have to be married. They have to really cherish each other and be in love with each other. He thought that masturbation and homosexuality and any other perversion led you into depravity and far away from the Godhead, which, of course, is the opposite of everything that Crowley did, right? Totally. So <clears throat> there's no evidence he actually got it from Pascal Randolph at all. But <clears throat> you could say he was kind of the original father in Western mysticism and occultism of sex magic. Right? Okay. Now, like I said, Young's theory, along with most of Eastern philosophy, is <clears throat> that the woman is the goddess. The chalice is where it goes. Here I have a, a thing here. And Kundalini, of course, right now, like I said, the one theory on sex magic is that you don't release the semen. But you have this long, promulgated, drawn-out sex act with somebody you really know and care about, right? And at the point of orgasm, you stop. And that channels the libido or the sexual energy up through the spine, through the chakras, to the kether, and that's the vital sexual dynamic or in Western terms, libido, that they preach, right? <laughs> Which is the opposite of a lot of Western sex magic, right? Because Crowley believed that, uh, and others too, <clears throat> Kenneth Grant and all of them, <clears throat> that you should um, take the sperm and the elixir and you should bathe talismans in it to give them magic properties or coat sigils with them, et cetera, et cetera. <clears throat> but that goes kind of along with the other theory on sex magic, that at the point of orgasm, you launch the intention into the universe and make it manifest, right? Now, Austin Spare, <clears throat> I studied with Crowley for a little bit too, though. Uh, he was a very good artist, but very surrealistic artist. And he was very much into sex magic and the occult too. And he is the father of the idea of introducing a sigil into the process. So what he would say to do is, let's say, <clears throat> oh, I want money. I need money. So you write that out in English or whatever language. You take out the vowels and just leave the consonant. Mm -hmm. Then you mismatch that around 
and you keep mashing it, mishing it around until you just turn it into a symbol. Then you and your partner capture a mental image of that sig sigil and you rip it up and throw it away. Then when you're going through the sex act, at the point of orgasm, you both visualize that sigil and launch it. And that's probably the most common Western form of sex magic these days, I would say. You know, the idea of the sigil and launching the whole thing. It's even used in Wicca and, you know, just about everywhere. So now <clears throat> I studied, let's see, we can go to... Um, where are we here? What's the next slide? Uh, oh, we did Randolph. That's Pascal Beverly Randolph, the uh, father of such men. Oh, boy. Here we go. There we go. <laughs> the culmination of Western magic. Yeah, there they are. I'm telling you. Well, you know, I did about a year and a half research on these two. Okay. But in the last month, I discovered something that blew my mind. Okay. <clears throat> Let's see, go to the next slide. Okay, this is a depiction of erato-comatose lucidity. Have you heard of that? Probably not. Okay, Crowley didn't invent it, but he practiced it. <clears throat> the theory was that, wait a minute, we're going down the rabbit hole, so I'm putting on my... Okay. <laughs> <clears throat> Crowley believed in sex magic, right? In attaining higher consciousness. But one of the methods he used was he'd get two women and a guy or three women, and they would keep arousing him and arousing him for hours without him having an orgasm to the point of pure physical, mental, and sexual exhaustion. And he believed that that would put you in a trance state of altered consciousness. Okay. And I think it, it's probably something similar to yoga, but I think I don't think any of them have three concubines and a guy there all doing it all at once for hours. I think Crowley was just having a wonderful old time, don't you? <laughs> okay, so let's see, go to the next slide. <clears throat> okay, now we'll get into just in a minute. But here's what I discovered about Epstein. I knew there was an occult connection, like I said in the uh, audio interview we did, that when they raided his townhouse, they found two books on his desk. One was Crowley's um, White Stains, which is a homage poet to masturbation, and the other one was the Marquis de Sade's Justine, which is about sex and sadism and perversion, right? Now, I went back, because I was just putting some papers together, and I looked at the depositions that these young girls gave. Mm -hmm. And about four out of five of them said the same thing. Now, I think most people wouldn't think anything of it because they're not familiar with um, the occult or sex magic or the esoteric. But what the girls said was they would be giving them fellatio or masturbating by hand. When he got to the point of orgasm, he would stop them. Mm. And he seemed to have kind of like a physiological orgasm, but more like a mental orgasm, right? Then he'd tell them to take a break. He'd go in the office, get on the phone, make some business calls, 
And he'd come back and he'd do it all over again. He'd go make the business calls. He'd come back, he'd do it all over again. So bingo, I was kind of like Robert Ann. Well, he's practicing Gerato Kamatos lucidity. Because then he figured when he makes these calls and he's you know calling, bringing new people in, making arrangement, he's going to be very clear-minded, lucid, and he's going to have this magical influence over everybody. And I don't think anybody's really looked at it through that lens, but that's clearly mm-hmm. what he was doing. Totally. Okay. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it sounds far out, but why would you keep doing that over and over again? And, you know, just because Lane said he liked to have three orgasms a day. Yeah. But, you know, he was in the 60s. Do you think he could really have three orgasms a day? I don't think so, though. No matter how much Viagra it took, there's only so much semen your body produces that it has to, like, boys. Get back to the factory. We've got to make more. Right? <laughs> like now, that Woody Allen movie. Yeah. Oh, I love Oh, that was <laughs> Everything you ever wanted in about Oh, we're going again. We're going again. <laughs> <laughs> that was a fun one. John Carradine. With the, yeah. <laughs> so we're going to put you in this room with a hundred horny Boy Scouts and they're going to gangbang. <laughs> he was crazy. I don't know about what he is. Personal, he made some fighting. Oh, yeah. Okay, now I found out something about Ghislaine I didn't know. Mm. Okay, <clears throat> she had she was one of nine kids, you know, so she had two sisters and a bunch of brothers, right? And it really kind of feels sorry for her because in my book, I kind of went into her psychological pathology, you know, but I did a little more deep diving. When she was a toddler, mother became very ill. So she had no connection with mommy for like three years, period. Oh, wow. And daddy was always off at work, right? Mm. So a nanny kind of raised her, you know? And she was always daddy's girl. But he was an absolute tyrant. You know, he would have them sit around the table and recite something. If they didn't get it right, he would just chastise them and bully them. <clears throat> and I put it in my book, but she... Um, she told a friend that, well, daddy used to spank me, but he would let me either pick the hairbrush or the slipper hmm. when I was naughty. And she said, this is an adult. You know? so, and people always said that <clears throat> when they were out together, they act more like lovers than father and daughter. You know, She was always on his arm at these banquets and events. So I can't prove there was something, but you know, when I was briefly a CPS investigator, we had to separate, let's say, even the 10-year-olds from the five-year-olds. Because if a child is molested and they don't get therapy, they usually internalize that and they take out their aggressive repressed anger on somebody else and molest them. So if Ghislaine was molested by her father, like I suspect, she would naturally turn a blind eye to these girls because in a way, and then she was allegedly actually part of the molestation process at times too. But you can see the psychodynamic there, but she would just say, well, you know, it's no big deal. It's not like somebody killed you or really hurt you. I was molested. You could be molested too. And it was kind of a release for her. Now going 
further down the rabbit hole. <laughs> and this blew my mind. And this is where we got to get in Jack Parsons a little bit. Okay. Um, Christine Maxwell, her sister, okay, was married to Roger Molina. Now, let me go into Parsons a little bit, just hold that thought. Okay. Um, I think your viewers know who Jack Parsons was. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, pretty much so. Okay. Anyway, well, he was founder of JPL, Aerojet. He got all these contracts, everything. <clears throat> His family lost their fortune in the crash. But due to all the money he got from the government, because he invented these jet assisted uh, takeoff things for, in, during World War II. And then when they found out that the Nazis were testing the V2, they gave him like half a million dollars, right? Okay, so he went through all that. And then, of course, <clears throat> he was interested to the OTO and Thelema by this couple called the Baxters. It took him about two years to really get involved and bring his wife Helen into it, but he did. Then with the money he had, right, he bought this big house in uh, Pasadena right next to the Bush family, right? Anheuser Bush, I guess it was. <clears throat> Not the Bushes. <laughs> okay. And uh, he put an ad in the paper saying only, you know, um, unconventional bohemians, artists, and musicians, and everybody need apply. And he rented out the rooms for $100 a month if they could afford it, right? Now, when he was at Caltech, he had no degree, right? And neither did his best childhood friend, Edward Foreman, right? But they used to blow up rockets in their backyard, and Foreman used to protect them from the bullies and everything. They were like uh, peas in a pot, this type. So you got to give Parsons his due. You know, he had a brilliant mind, and he had went into Caltech, and they talked to the head of the aeronautics division and convinced them that they had something here. And he said, well, okay, go ahead, I'll give you a little bit of time and money, prove it. So they went out into the desert, and they just started blowing shit up, right? <laughs> so part of that movie was true about Strange Angel, where he, he saw the tar melting on the roof, and he realized the tar was the secret to the propulsion for the solid fuel rockets. And it's true, that was, but he didn't see his roof burning and all that. So anyway... So the Suicide Squad, there was a Chinese guy, I forget his name, but it was mainly Parsons, Ed Foreman, and Frank Molina. Guess who Ghislaine Maxwell's sister's father-in-law was? Frank Molina of the Suicide Squad. Now, isn't that weird? That's just That put me right down a rabbit hole. I'm like, what the hell? Synchronicity? What the hell's going on here? Now, I couldn't find um, Molina himself really got into the OTO, but Ed Foreman and his wife did, for sure. And of course, he was Jack's close friend, right? And he not only went to the first grade, he and his wife went to the second grade of the OTO. So they were deeply into the OTO. And like I said, I couldn't find that Frank did, but you got to think. The Frank's son, right, grew up, and Ed Foreman was his buddy. I'm sure Ed Foreman came over to the house frequently for dinner and drinks and everything, right? 
And of course, NASA and everybody, history is kind of whitewashed Parsons as a nutcase, right? But he was really the father of modern rocketry, right? Totally. But I don't know. I just, I thought that was really fascinating connection, especially with Epstein and the uh, Dorado Commons Dose of the City. Um, and it kind of goes along with his eugenics plan, too, where he wanted to impregnate all these women out of his ranch in New Mexico and <laughs> talk about, you think he was maybe a sociopath, too, a narcissist, and he had, had the sorcerer aspect of Machiavellianism, narcissism, and sociopathy? Yeah, mm -hmm. I mean, totally. Yeah. He wanted to spread his seed throughout the world, you know, because his seed was apparently so marvelous. <laughs> So anyway, um, I guess you put my books back up. The, um, oh, that's, that's, that's Parsons on the left, Ed in the middle, and Frank uh, Molina on the right. And they were doing the jet-propelled jets. So you can see the jet behind them. Our aircraft, not jets. We didn't have jets yet. We stole that from the Nazis. <laughs> and the Russians created the MiG and we created the jet. Okay, so this is the book I was just talking about. Like I said, I did a year and a half's research on Epstein and Ghislaine and the whole thing. Now, it's fiction, but every word they say in the book and almost all their actions are based on actual fact and recounting of their friends the victims, everything. Now, of course, it took total dramatic license in the end, mm -hmm. right? And I had to beef it up a little bit, but I didn't have to make up anything. It just so, <laughs> I mean, just so weird. Like Truth is stranger than fiction. Huh? Yeah, just laying <laughs> at a cocktail party, right? And her friend recounted this, but they're all sitting around and she ran upstairs and got a bunch of scarves, right? She tied them all around the man's faces and he had the women who were in attendance get up and expose their breasts. Then they moved around, and the men blindfolded had to feel their breasts, and then the game was to guess which one. Oh I mean, the woman said, I was just trying to figure out how the fuck to get out of here. I can't believe this is going. But see, Jelaine was so twisted, she just thought it was great fun. But, mm -hmm. but I think she was really into her sorcerership because she wanted to push the envelope. And it's, it's an addiction. The more you get a thrill, you want another thrill. You want a stronger thrill. And you want something else. You want to break another taboo or another. And, of course, she's totally innocent now, isn't she? Yeah. Of course. So we'll see what happens with her. So anyway, that's available on Amazon.com. Just look under Predator to the Elite to File. And the other book, um, <clears throat> The Bonnage Project, just look under Richard Douglas. And they're fiction, but like I said, it's uh, well, in this one, like I said, it always creeps in. I filled it with actual ceremonial magical rituals and actual accounts of a black mass per line. I didn't make up any of that whatsoever. And you know, I've got the lesser bandaging ritual, the, the magic square, I mean, the triangle and the circle and the uh, John D's uh, calls of the ethers, everything's in there too. So it always creeps into my writing somehow. Well, mm. because uh, it fascinates me, I guess. <laughs> well, I think I've covered it all.
yeah well thank you for that really appreciate it. yeah check out his book people uh it's all there and it's all true all, all i have to mention is that yeah as uh i think i also mentioned last time uh uh, Maxwell and Epstein were fascinated with Atlantis. They had a submarine, so they had something there too. So we're still learning as this goes how deep into the occult these cats. Oh, are. I think it's going to be like JFK. It's going to be one of these conspiracies that just yeah. out there for the next hundred years, forever, mm-hmm. forever. So yeah, uh, Vince, I got to let the cat out. Do you have a question or when it gets to super chat? I'll be right back. Um, yeah, no super chat questions tonight. And uh, I don't have any questions either. You covered a long, uh, long uh, chain of things there, Richard. So yeah, like I said, my head's kind of tired. I'm going to take a couple days off now. <laughs> <laughs> take, take care of that cough there. Uh, thank you for yeah, uh, pressing so, through. I think I had to do with these, but, uh, oh, yeah. When I'm writing or I'm researching, Hey, I had a theory, you know, with, with Epstein. Yeah. Do you think that, you know, of course he died in a cell, he was hanged. What What is that sexual practice that some people have where they strangle themselves oh, or partially hang themselves? Erotical autism where they hang themselves. Yeah. Like, do you think that may... man did it and he fucked up and he killed himself. Yeah. It's like you're yeah. supposed to ejaculate just to the point where you're going to pass out and then stop. Right. So I wonder if he was doing uh, that, you know. <laughs> no, I'm really undecided because, you know, I inspected prisons when I worked for the Justice Department for a while. And I would normally say a federal prison, you couldn't commit suicide. But that place, the MCC, is a hole in the ground. And it's just overcrowded. The guards are uneducated. Most of them are anywhere, but there they really are. We had temporary yeah. guards too, right? They, they they weren't even the regular guards. I heard they were. Well, like, they, they were working a double shift that day, too, sixteen hours, you know, and they'd done it. You no, know, they were really understaffed, and it's a hellhole because I mean, in a regular federal prison, you can't even put anything on the wall. Your desk has to be empty. Everything has to be in your locker. They toss your room every two weeks, you know. So, and why they took him up, I kind of think he did commit suicide because I think he knew he couldn't beat this one, maybe, you know. If his lawyer told him about all these girls coming forward now as adults, you know, and maybe even thought that Ghislaine would drop a dime on him, you know. But Uh, that seemed to go totally against his character as an egomaniac to want to kill himself. You would think he thought no matter what he could beat the rap. So and the cameras weren't working either. There was Yeah. Well, and the other thing is, you know, Bill Barr's father was head of Wharton School that hired him to teach English in the first place. So Barr kind of had a motive to wash whitewash it because he didn't want this thing to come out that his dad was somehow gave Epstein his uh-huh. world, you know. And that sounds kind of silly, but not really when you think about it from a son's point of view about his father. And that all came out eventually. So I don't know. And Barr, who knows? You know, I mean, yeah. he was a mealy mouth lying bastard, too. <laughs> well, he was an attorney, what can you say? <laughs> <laughs> you know, Hitler said, they all belong in the ocean, the bottom of the ocean. Some people say he was a spy, and that's you know it was a honeypot scheme. Well, they get... there's a guy on the internet. I can't remember his name, but you've seen him. He's got kind of long hair. He pulls back. He's an ex-CIA agent, and he said he didn't think that he worked for 
U.S. intelligence. Mossad, probably Mossad. He didn't say Mossad, but he said, I think he worked for a foreigner because um, Robert Maxwell was definitely a Mossad agent, even a Russian agent. When he died, he got high burial with all the previous and current heads of Mossad, the prime minister, the cabinet, everybody attended his funeral, even though they knew that he'd stole what was it, $50 million for the pension fund and uh, fell off a boat. Now, the, why? I don't think he fell off that boat either. I think somebody pushed him off that boat. But why Mossad would do it, they said, well, he was trying to blackmail them from money. Well, I think they'd just say no, they wouldn't kill him for that. You know, and then give him a honorary funeral. But I think somebody somewhere killed him, you know, because <clears throat> he had ordered a small... Skeleton crew on the yacht compared to what he normally had that trip. And he normally was very recluse on the lot. He didn't want to be bothered at all. But then again, you could say, well, he intended to jump overboard. But he had this habit of getting up in the middle of the night drunk, nude, and peeing over the railing. In some conjecture, he was just drunk and he fell over the damn boat. Hmm. Well, too bad. Yes, we'll never know. <laughs> now, that's going to be like a conspiracy for the rest of the years, too, to, you know. Some Soviet agent comes forward, and, you know. That's what I put in my book. So I think you, if you read it, you'll love the end because now I can't give away the end. Yeah, don't give it away. <coughs> it's really funny. <laughs> it's funny. <coughs> All righty. I try to awesome. look at the Yeah. So, <laughs> hey, um, in the future, can you call me? I'm going to start a podcast. We're off, right? No, no, we're still oh, live. We're oh, okay. We're yeah, this, this is not the time to start oh. cursing and. <laughs> no, I'm just joking. I'm just joking. No, we're not. We, we have to say our. Uh, we have to give our official goodbyes, which I will commence. Uh, yeah, for the audience, I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, thank you very much, Chester, for the super chat. I always appreciate that support. Um, other than that, honestly, there are some sinks. Next week, uh, Jason Reza Giorgiani is going to join us. He's going to talk about the intersection of Sophia and Eros. So expect some good stuff, including his latest on AI and so forth. And then David Block will join us to discuss the occult and Gnostic themes and secrets behind the Wizard of Oz. So two good shots. And and this weekend, I will put out a, a great show on theurgy. Uh, Greek classical theurgy, so you'll love uh, all these ideas on this spiritual text. So stay tuned. Please support this show. But we are at the end. Vance, thanks for uh, keeping us company. Oh, it was a great ride through yeah. history. Yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to sound like a history professor, but I thought... No, I should, you, no. You know, well, history yeah. professor I have heard of. <laughs> you might have some listeners that are that knowledge of our no it's great great overview of a lot of things no, it was things together yeah okay awesome well richard always enjoy when you show up and we look forward to the next time yeah. whenever you have any more revelations come here and we'll spill the beans and oh i'm sure i'll see have some what <laughs> <laughs> yeah 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 you're a writer you're always yeah. you're either writing or researching right. no, uh, exactly. way. so so no always <laughs> glad to see you uh, thanks, everybody, who showed up tonight. Uh, good comments there in the chat. And, again, we'll have, a, a again, a normal podcast this weekend. And next week we'll have two big-time 
AB Lives, which of course will bring a lot of amazing research. So thanks for being here. Keep supporting this show. Keep looking inward and yeah, keep writing your own gospel, living your own myth. Take care, everybody, and have a good rest of the week. Good night. Good night.